This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Ames, New York, six miles south of Canajoharie, has a population of about 150 people. Historic items are housed in the Village Museum on Latimer Hill Road. The museum occupies a building constructed by enslaved African Americans in 1835. It was a private, then a public school, and became the Village Museum in 1988 through the efforts of Maud and Gus Van Arsdale. Dennis Malcolm is curator of the museum and village historian today. Dennis explains how he and his wife Sandy ended up in Ames. Uh, We were both from western Pennsylvania, a little town called Indiana, Pennsylvania. And in 1998, uh, I became position eliminated and my wife finished her PhD at uh, Penn State University and we made the deal. Whoever got the first job, the other one would stay behind and sell everything and move to where the other one was. And Sandy landed the job at uh, State University in New York at Cobleskill in the early childhood department. So I was the one chosen to get rid of 30 years' worth of material and make the move. And if it didn't go in the car, it didn't come. And since then, you both have been educators. You teach as well. I do substitute teaching at Sharon Springs Central School, yes. How did you and Sandy get involved in the museum? Uh, The lady who was here before, Maude Van Arsdale, kept bugging us to come see her museum. So we came down one Saturday morning, and we were here almost eight hours. And I started working for Maude as her maintenance guy, I guess you could call it. Come fix this, come fix this, take a look at this. And just got really interested into the history of the whole village. And when she passed in 2012, I filed the paperwork to take over as the village historian, and I got the job. Who better? I remember Maude. She was a very nice lady. Yes, she was. She was very, very knowledgeable and not afraid to share it with you. Okay. It's probably true. And you come with, in a sense, I hate to use this word, maybe uh, an outsider's perspective to Ames and, and the museum. Yeah, we moved here in 1999, and, and we are probably the least knowledgeable in the entire village about the museum. Uh, so when people come in village to, to see the museum, we do a lot more listening than we do talking. The museum is located on Latter Mill Hill, Hill Road. Latimer Hill Road, yes. And what did it used to be? It used to be what they called the the Village of Ames Academy originally. It was built in 1865 by a later lady called Abigail Bingham. Uh, pretty feisty lady. She uh, kept bugging the village fathers to build a school, and of course they kept saying, no, 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 we'll get to it, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. So after about five years, she went into a meeting with the deed for these five acres and put it on the desk, and they said, oh, good, well, we're going to get to it. She says, no, you don't understand. We're going to start building tomorrow morning. (laughs) And her farm workers and her started stacking the stone that next morning. And it then became a private academy and then went to a free school and then became uh, in conjunction with the Canajahari School District. And the last class closed here in 1959. And as I recollect, or maybe you just said it, Maude Van Arsdale really was uh, essential in in starting this as a museum? Yes, her... Maude and her uh, husband, Gus, started it. The, the building sat empty for a while. There was a few village offices in it, and they decided that they were going to take the ground floor and start to put together a museum, and it opened in 1988. We're in the first floor of the museum. Let's talk about some of the exhibits. You have the Beechnut Circus, I believe. 
yes, it was a, a traveling demonstration of a, a circus. It's all animals that really don't move, but they do. And they were in the back of a, a van that went to schools and festivals and fairs around here and started initially in this area and then branched out. The trucks went as far, it's do documented, they went as far as Minneapolis and San Diego. The circuses, there was three of them, all three of them were at the 1939 World's Fair in New York City. Uh, and Beechnut had their own pavilion at the, at the World's Fair, and these circuses were inside. And they had two ladies who were dressed up like vendors for the circus who gave away 4.5 million chiclets at the World's Fair in 1939. It's a lot of gum. Sure is. It's a lot of gum. It's a lot of gum coming out of Canajahari. Now, um, you also have here a stove. I mean, you have an eclectic collection, I would say. You have a, a, a stove here on the first floor. What is that? Well, it was originally in the Oddfellows Hall, which was on Route 10 in the village here, and it heated the entire, uh, entire building for as long as the building was there. And when they tore the building down, uh, one of the gentlemen took it and had it in his basement and heated his house with it until he passed away. And he had told his wife that when he was done and when he was gone, that was to come back to us, and it came back to us last summer. Pretty heavy. It took four of us to get it in here. Okay. It burns wood, and it did burn some coal in the Oddfellows Hall. And you've got a collection of maps, which are, are nicely displayed now, uh, thanks to a former student of yours? Uh, no, she was the valedictorian at Canajary High School uh, two years ago, and she loves maps. And she just told me, she said, the, the museum's fine, but she said, Mr. M, your maps are everywhere. They need to be in one central location. So she gave me some money, and we built a display, and we moved all the maps into one area. And that includes local maps and the maps that were originally from the school, mm -hmm. which were, were, most of them are dated in the 1930s. So if you would look at the map of Africa, you won't recognize <laughs> one single name because they have all changed. Now, tell us a little bit about, a little more about Ames. As I recall, when I spoke with Ms. Van Arsdale, there were about 200 people that lived in Ames at that time, which was in the early 2000s. Has that changed? Uh, we might have a few more, but it's basically the same. It's basically the same. We're, right now in the village, we're in, I guess you could call it a, an age turnover. A lot of the, the village people are now elderly or have passed, so we're getting some new people in with younger children, so it's, it's becoming a younger village again. Uh, but we've got the playground, the ball field, the museum, uh, good school district in Canajahari, and a lot of people here. And it's a nice, quiet place. You can sit on the back deck of your house in the evening and hear nothing except the crickets in the evening. The children here go to the Canajahari schools? Yes, they do now. They all go to Canajahari, yes. It's a pretty village, and I don't know if we have yeah, time for this story now, but um, I, I remember talking to Maud Van Arsdale. One thing we discussed was the visit of the writer E.B. White to Ames in, I think, 1940 or something like that, and he used an anecdote about Ames in one of his Stuart Little books about the mouse that goes all over the place. Yes, that's true. He he stopped on his way through at the corner store, which is going to open again, probably, I'm, we're hoping, sometime this fall. I noticed that. I, went, I said, I wonder if the store, I can't remember if it was open when I was here before, but it looks like it's going to open. It, it, it was open for quite a while, and then the gentleman uh, got another interest, and he sold it, 
and now a young couple have bought it and they're going to reopen it and we're excited about it being open. But E.B. White stopped there in the early 40s to get a sarsaparilla, is what the book says. Mm -hmm. And he sat on the porch and he called it Ames Crossing in his chapter 13 in his book. And he said it was the most peaceful, quiet place he had ever been. Lined with beautiful trees and children playing on the walks in the village. Uh, and the chapter goes on to explain what he knows about the village. And even with only like maybe the 200 or so of folks living here, it is a village. It's an incorporated village. We are the smallest incorporated village in New York State. We were incorporated in 1927. And uh, we are still the smallest one even till today. Also on your first floor, lest we forget, uh, you have a voting machine. I'm sorry to laugh about that. It's interesting. And remnants of the post office. Yes. The, the, the county of Montgomery went to uh, the electronic voting and was going to scrap all the voting machines. Well, I, we decided we were going to get one, and then we got the one that was in the village firehouse down, and we did all the paperwork, so it is ours now. It took... A bucket tractor and six firemen to get it here. That's how heavy it is. But it still works. Okay. And the other voting thing we have is, is the original one from the early 1900s where you went in, shut the flap, took your pencil, marked the paper ballot, and put it in the box. And we have those boxes, too, and those boxes are still used in the village elections today. And do you have those electronic machines now, or in one or two? Or? We have two of them that, are in, that come to the village and for the elections. Actually, they'll be coming next month for the primary. And you also have uh, remnants, I say, of the post office. There's no longer a post office here? No, the post office closed here. We, up until 2002, we had our own postmark, uh, our own post office in, in, the, in the store, and then the lady retired, and the post office said, we're not going to have it there anymore. Everything's going to come through Canada Johari. So we were lucky enough to get the last postmark set up from the day that the, that the post office closed. And we have it here, plus some boxes, the, the original mailboxes that were in the store at the time. Well, I think that's the first floor. Oh, except for the wheelchair. You don't know where that came from. I have no idea. I know it was built in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1905, and it is very uncomfortable to sit in. I can't imagine spending my life in that cane chair. It kind of remind, yeah, it reminds me of things I've seen President Roosevelt, you know, pictures of, of yes. him in a similar device. Yes, yes that'd be about right. It, uh it was built by Arrow in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1905, but I, it's very uncomfortable to sit in. It's not made for a guy as big as I am. More from Dennis Malcolm at the Village of Ames Museum in just a moment. We depend on your contributions to keep going with the Historian's Podcast. Please make a donation online at gofundme.com forward slash historians2017. Or send a donation in the mail. Make the check out to Bob Cutmore and send to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you. Our conversation with Dennis Malcolm moved from the museum's first floor outside to a tool shed chock full of historic objects. The most unusual, a machine used by farmers sowing seeds. It's like a wheelbarrow set up with a big wheel on the front and it has a mechanism that is flipped like paddles by the wheel spinning back and forth and you put this 
tray, seed tray on a fillet full of seeds, and then you walk behind it up and down the field and spread the seed. The machine does all the work. You just do the guidance system. This one's a smaller one. It only has like a 12-foot box. Some of them are as large as 34. Uh, remember, you have to get through the gate with the one that's 34 before you put the box on it. If not, you're not going to get in to put the seed on the field. This is the way the, seed, the fields were seeded here in the late 1800s. And I believe you got some help from the well-known Willis Barshide with this piece of equipment. Gentlemen, I think he's up in Palatine. Yeah, he's in Stone Arabia. Uh, he still lives up there. He uh, came in one day and he told us that we thought it was uh, a machine to carry wheat or, or grain to the barn. And he said no, and he started explaining it to me. And he said, you know, actually, I have a box, another piece for that up in my barn come up on Saturday, and I'll give it to you. And we went up and picked up the, the uh, 12-foot box that he had, and now it is complete. And when we have an open house, we put it out, and the kids are able to run up and down the field here with it and play with it sort of like a toy. But it also gives them an idea how hard it was to plant seed back in the 1800s. Then now I called this the tool shed, but I gather it used to be a restroom. A restroom for what? Well, uh, in uh, before 1997, Ames used to have a big event every year called the Old Homes Days. It was a week-long event put on by the firemen. Uh, had a four-hour parade. Used to draw 15,000 people to this tiny little village for that parade. And we had a carnival here that went on all week long. And that's how the firemen paid for their trucks and the upkeep and the equipment they needed for the fire station. But they just don't do it anymore. No, they have three pancake breakfasts now in January, February, and March, which everybody out here is known and they're world-renowned for their pancake breakfast. You come and eat all you want for a certain price. And it tastes pretty good when it's really, really cold. Sure. Now, also, you have oh, you have an old electric fan. Uh, not too many safety precautions with that. No, I'm afraid if you use that today, someone would lose a finger because the guard on the front, you can actually put your whole hand right into the blade. But that's the way they were used in the 20s and the 30s. Mm. And you've got on display some barbed wire. And there's a story in connection with how the barbed wire got here. A gentleman from up just north of St. Johnsville called me one day and said he had a barbed wire collection. Did I want it? And I thought, well, farming, okay, I'll take it. I came down one day, it was rolled in a ball and was laying on the steps in front of the tool shed. And I started to unwrap it, and every time I got done, I had more Band-Aids than I had barbed wire Mm -hmm. because they really bite. Uh, I have 11 different kinds, and through research, I found out that there's actually 187 different kinds of barbed wire in the United States that were actually manufactured here. Mm. The, the, the neatest one that I have is from Cincinnati. It's all links. It's all handmade. It's all hand put together, and it was made in 1875 from Cincinnati, Ohio. And you've got a lot of hand tools here. Or Anything you want to say about, about some of the other stuff? The toolbox was actually my wife's grandfather's from western Pennsylvania. He was a carpenter by trade, uh, and it went to Virginia with her brother then when her brother passed we brought it home here and put it in a museum and then I have tools from uh, many members of the community plus my dad her dad her grandfather our neighbors uh, and some that we just had donated to us from all over the, the county out here and maybe I should remind again we're at the Ames Museum in the village of Ames New York and when is the museum open there's only four of us who actually run it. So we're, right now we're open consistently one Saturday a month 
from April through October, from 9 to 3. We give individual tours. If so, you can call our number or go to the website, which is amesmuseum.weebly.com, and we can make arrangements for you to come for a private tour whenever you need be. We do have a major event in September called Summer's End Event uh, with vendors. We have food, crafts, unique products, uh, and artists, and quilts, and things of that nature where you can come. If you're a vendor, it's free. You just come set up, uh, and you spend the day. And if you have a good day, make a donation to the museum. If not, just come enjoy being in the smallest incorporated village in New York. Yes, and it sounds like you're starting to carry on that tradition of having a big event that people come to in Ames. That's one reason we wanted to do is try and keep Ames on the map. Uh, you'd be surprised the number of people when you say, well, I live in Ames, they say, where is Ames? Well, Ames is six miles south of uh, Canajoharie. At least for a while, there's a detour to get there, but it's usually quite easy to reach. Yes, it is. It's, it's, but don't blink. You'll miss us. If you see the store in the fire station, you're in the heart of metropolitan downtown Ames. Well, I came in a different way that I uh, came in from the last time, and I, it was, it's nice. I mean, you can tell it's a, it's a village. something about it, you know, a few houses together that, that aren't farms. You came up the, the valley, and you have to remember, in the 1870s, when hops was king in this area, uh, hops was grown from Cooperstown to the top of Latimer Hill, 30,000 people lived in the valley you drove through this morning. Mm. If you wanted a hotel, a bed and breakfast, or a boarding room, or a house, you lived in Ames. If you lived in Buell, that's where the stagecoach station was, so that's where the gambling, the liquor, and the Saturday night ladies of the evening were. But if you wanted to go to the financial district of the valley, you went to Sproutbrook. That's where the stores and the banks were. So it was actually one big 30,000-person um, community. But then the blight came through and knocked off all the uh, the hops, and it got a, a blight and killed it all. And then people just started drifting away. So now we're just three very small independent communities again. But what, back in the days when there were a lot, I mean, that's a lot of people in, in this area. Well, Ames at one time had five major hotels, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of people stayed here. They came in, a lot of immigrants came in to help harvest the hops, which is a, a hand-heavy hand crop to do because the flowers have to be picked by hand. They can't mm-hmm. be done by machine. Today, they had machines to do it, but back then, you had to actually cut the flowers of the hops and so they could send it for the beer. Well, in a few minutes, we'll go upstairs where I understand you have some paintings uh, by the... Uh, Traveling artist uh, Fritz Vogt, he used to pick hops, I'm told. Uh, he, did, he did a lot of things until he met the elementary teacher in uh, Fort Plain and fell in love and got married, and then he ended up teaching in, in Fort Plain. Now, there's a, a device in front of the Ames Museum. I think we maybe have time for that story in this segment uh, that was used by the fire department as an alarm. What is it? It's, it's what we call a fire gong. It hung in front of the fire station for as long as the fire station's been here. And it's the rim off a steam engine wheel. And it's cut in half. And when you hit it with a hammer, you can hear it ring all over the valley. And in September, we have a 5K run. And we start the race at 9 o'clock on that morning by striking it with a farrier's hammer. And it rings loud enough that you can still hear it all over the valley. Good news is uh, you were telling me that there still is a farrier or a blacksmith in Ames. Uh, yeah, Mr. McCarthy is still here. He still does a lot of blacksmith work. He does a lot of work for the Beekman boys in Sharon Springs. But he does a lot of work around the community for us, too. And he's the one, he, actually his apprentice, Kenny, 
uh, is the one who designed the frame and put the rim up for me out front last year. That was his final project for his internship. Dennis and I then moved inside to the second floor of the museum. I asked him about an attraction in front of the museum, the Little Ames Free Library. Yes, we were given that by the Palatine Literary Society, and it's a miniature library. You take a book, you leave a book. Uh, It's free to anybody. You can even take a book and not leave a book. It's good for children, adults, uh, anyone who just likes to read. And I was mentioning to you folks that when I got here that I knew there was something like that up in Tribes Hill, and there's a connection with your little library and the Tribes Hill little library. The lady from the Palatine Literary Society told us that the one in Tribes Hill was damaged during the flood, and so the Boy Scout troop over there said if they would buy the material, they would build two. So they would build one for Tribes Hill, and they built, got enough material to build two. And when they had one, she thought of us out here. So she called, and we set it up, and we accepted it, and now we have our own little mini library in Ames. Well, I'm going to have to leave my latest book there, Lost Mohawk Valley, and maybe it'll last for a while. We'll gladly accept it. (laughs) Very good. Now, up here on the second floor, and you'd mentioned this when we were in the tool shed, you've got some reproductions of uh, paintings by Fritz Vogt, the itinerant German immigrant uh, painter who went around the valley and painted farmers' homes. Yes, he, he came from New York and was looking for work, and he would come into your farm, and if you would feed him dinner and give him a place to sleep, he would draw your house. So we have uh, eight reproductions in the museum here. There are two originals left in the valley, uh, but most of them have gone to New York City or into private collections in the city itself. Yeah, because they can be quite valuable. Yes, they can. We we were told that there was one that was sold for quite a amount of money last summer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So uh, they are gaining more value every year. Yeah, yeah and again, they're uh, haunting, I find, sometimes to look at a Fritz Vogt picture because, as the gentleman who wrote a book about him said, he was this basically a homeless man for much of his life who had an idea of what home was like. Yes, he came up here uh, with... in his pocket and walked up here from New York and was wanting to become an artist and worked his way up and down the Mohawk River Valley just painting houses or drawing sketches of houses and properties and barns where he'd stay and if you fed him dinner and gave him a place to sleep it was for free or you could pay him in cash and he finally settled in the Fort Plain area. Another interesting feature you have here on the second floor is your newspaper collection. And you've, uh, it's apparently growing. And also, there was a big improvement that a 10-year-old boy encouraged you to make, or he gave you the inspiration. Yes, about two years ago, I had a 10-year-old boy who came in here, and he knew I had some papers here from the 1929-1930 era when the Yan- Yankees were the mighty Yankees, and he wanted to know if there was any stories in there. And I told him, we can't really look at them because we can't really touch them. And he left here discouraged. I made up my mind right then. I told my wife, we're going to do something so we can actually see every single page. So that winter, we spread them out on tables, covered them with cardstock, and used the encyclopedias for weights. And since they're pure paper, all the wrinkles came out. We cut them in half, found a company in Tennessee who do 
does archival bags, put them in these bags, made wooden splints for the ends, screwed them all together, and now you can actually turn and look at every single page. We have them from as far back as 1826 up until the turn of the century. And uh, it's one of the more popular exhibits at the museum, you were saying. And tell us more about the uh, newspaper from 1826, some of the advertising you found fascinating. Well, the paper from 1826, you have to remember, that's when this country was 50 years old, and that's also the same year that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died within 12 hours of each other on July 4th. That one, the print is so small, I have trouble reading with my glasses on. I don't know how they did it. And you have to remember that to print those papers, each letter had to be hand-set and backwards so we would be able to read them. Some of the, the, the ads that we see in these newspapers, there's one that we still laugh about. Uh, you can get the meat, the seasoning, the sausage casing, and the machine, and it's delivered to your house for a dollar and a quarter. Or if your husband so desires, he can get three white linen shirts with real pearl buttons, three for five dollars. Uh, you can't even buy the buttons for that today. Indeed. You also have here on the second floor uh, an undertaker sign. What is his name? Devin? Devin Warren. And, well, that's from Ames? That's from Ames. Uh, the store on the corner started out being Scott's Opera House, and then it went to Winnie's Music House. And at the, at, when the undertaker was there, there was many things in the stores. The post office, the meat market, the deli, the lunch counter, the undertaker, the dentist. There was a roller rink on the second floor. The Baptist used the second floor for dinners. So it was really the center of the village. Uh, so if you needed an undertaker, you went to the village store. And to this day, when it was open, if you wanted the latest gossip in the village, you went to the village store. And you're hoping the village store will be opening soon? It's, we, we understand that it's been purchased by a, a young couple from Pennsylvania, and they're hoping to have it open sometime late this fall is what the word is that we're getting. Now, is Ames uh, is located south of Canagee Harry, is what you know seems most logical to me. But what else are you close to? We're close to Sharon Springs. Sher- Actually, we're closer to Sharon Springs than we are Canagee Harry. We're three miles to Sharon Springs. We're close to Root. Uh, we're close to Cherry Valley, uh, Richfield Springs. We're actually just south, just north of Route 20, which you take to go to Cooperstown if you come up this way. Uh, so we're right in the heart of the, the southern Mohawk Valley. Unlike a number of the communities in Montgomery County, and Ames is still in Montgomery County, uh, Ames, when Europeans settled here, they weren't Palatine Germans. They tended to be Yankees from New England. Fisher Ames came here from Connecticut, and he, he stayed for a while, but he didn't like to be around groups of people, but his wife missed being in Connecticut where the, there was a larger group of people in, in the area they came from in Connecticut. And so they left and went back, but it's still named for Fisher Ames. Also, uh, a man named Randall lived here, whose son, I believe, gave his name to the hamlet of Randall in Montgomery County. Phineas Randall was lived here. The house that they lived in still stands right beside the fire station. And he was a Supreme Court justice in New York and did many other things of importance in New York. And his son was worked for Abraham Lincoln in the White House and then went on to be the chancellor of the uh, University of Wisconsin. Actually, the football field at University of Wisconsin-Madison, Camp Randall, is named for him. 
and he came back and lived in Elmira, New York, but he, he liked Andrew Johnson, who took over for Lincoln when Lincoln was assassinated, and people didn't care for Johnson, so he, he paid the price for his political views. Mm. But he, was, uh, again, was a well-known abolitionist in the day. Yes, he was, and actually we have several houses named one that is documented to have been on the Underground Railroad. Well, I do remember Ms. Van Arsdale uh, telling me about that. Well, Dennis Malcolm, I thank you very much for uh, telling us all about Ames and the Ames Museum. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, and come back again.